1: Hello and welcome back to the Royal Horticultural Society's Gardening Podcast. I'm Guy Barter, Chief Horticulturist at the RHS. As regular listeners will know, this podcast is made by people who know and love gardening, for people who love gardening and who would like to know even more. We discuss all aspects of gardening, including design, plant care and propagation, pests and diseases, and growing your own fruit and vegetables, and lots more. In these podcasts, we hope that you'll hear something to interest everyone, whether you have years of gardening experience or none at all. Coming up in this edition, electric daisies, quinoa, shark's fin, melons and chickpeas are all growing on a windy hilltop in Essex. The podcast team visits a newly opened global growth vegetable garden at Hyde Hall to see the startling range of crops from around the world that they're attempting to cultivate. We'll bring you the latest news on events and activities at RHS Gardens this autumn, plus native or exotic, which plants are best to encourage beneficial insects into your garden. We speak to experts from the RHS Entomology team to hear the latest findings from their research into plants and bugs. But first, let's go outside to find out what key jobs the garden teams at Wisley are doing right now.
2: Hello, I'm Peter Jones from RHS Garden Wisley. And at this time of year, as we go into September, the garden teams are starting on their autumn jobs. And one job that we've really got our teeth stuck into is bulb planting. This year, Caesar's planting about 5,000 alliums, which will be a wonderful spring display. Also going in more recently, our autumn flowering crocus. The wonderful thing about these crocus is they're held in cold storage. And then within two weeks of planting, they should be flowering, creating a wonderful colorful display. Although we're moving into autumn, there is still plenty of a nice warm summer season left, so please remember to keep deadheading your perennials, such as helenium, so that you get a second flush right up until the colder weather starts.
1: As always, you can find more information about RHS Garden Wisley, see photos and find out about special events and attractions on our website. See rhs.org.uk forward slash Wisley. And remember, entry to all four of our gardens is free to members. Just one of the many benefits of joining the RHS. One of those gardens is Hyde Hall, near Chelmsford in Essex. Centred on a striking hill, a rare thing in that county, the garden boasts stunning views across the landscape. It began life in 1955 as a private garden with just six trees. If founders, Dr and Mrs Robinson, had known them what they soon learned, perhaps they would have thought twice about creating the garden. The site was cold and windy the top of the hill was covered in gravel and the soil on the slopes is heavy sticky clay but they and the rhs teams who took over from them in 1993 worked hard to transform this unpromising site into a stunning set of gardens one of the most recent additions is the global growth vegetable garden it's a vegetable plot with a difference growing a range of surprising challenging and unusual crops from around the world we met up with garden manager matthew oliver find out more
3: i am matthew oliver and i'm the horticulturist for the new global growth vegetable garden here at rhs hyde hall the new global growth veg garden is a brand new veg garden here Um, project that's been sort of in the pipeline for a good four or five years Um, finally opened after an 18-month build program and it's very unusual and different veg garden to anything else you'll see elsewhere in the country really because of the way it's designed and the concept behind it it's a circular garden so completely different from all the squares and rectangles and walled gardens productive gardens we know and love and visit up and down the country so completely different shape and then that circle is divided into four different quarters and each quarter represents a different continent area of the world. Europe and the Middle East, you've got Asia, North and Central America and South America as well. Um, and the whole point of it is that we're growing plants in the continent area in which they originate from. So showing people where food plants come from. It's really sort of completely changed the way people use Hyde Hall. In the centre of the circle we've got a, a 14 metre diameter octagonal glass house that's been bespoke made for us from Hartley Botanic, so really that's our first bit of glass we've got here at Hyde Hall, so people are loving that as a new feature. Um, lots of, uh, for now traditional glass house crops in there so tomatoes, chillies, cucumbers, melons, that kind of stuff, few unusuals in there. And then the garden is situated at the south side of the old hilltop garden where it's our our nursery used to be here. Um, that's now moved, that was all back of house, so opened up the garden a whole new area to people. And we've got great views um, looking south across the estate and on sort of wider parts of rural Essex, basically. We've only been open a couple of months, most people seeing it for the first time when they come, so it's really popular. You can hear people wandering around going, Oh, I never knew that could grow that here. <laughs> so this was designed by uh, Lady Zartow Marsh and her design studios. She's a garden advisor here at Hyde Hall and she's also on RHS Council as well. And uh, I think her inspiration from the garden came from the uh, when we hosted the Olympics in London with the with the prairie style plantings along the river there with stuff from different continents. That's where she got her idea from. When it comes to the planting, we're doing lots of different things really. So we're covering the basic grow your own things, all the things you'd know and love um, but just being grown in an area that shows people where they come from and then above and beyond that there's lots of unusual edibles lots and lots um, and that includes a couple of different things so includes edible plants that people will have heard of but might never have seen growing before so you can make that association between the food that they know and eat and how it's grown then there's lots of garden plants, what I call garden plants in here, that we'd grow, people would grow at home, we'd grow in the rest of Hyde Hall, um, but have a part of them, that's edible, that people might not know about. So good examples of that would be things like dahlias and canners and the daylilies and hostas and, and hardy ginger, things that we'd grow in the, in the rest of the garden as ornamental plants, but you wouldn't sort of know, oh... what part of that do you eat so it's educational from that point of view and then the bit that's most interesting for me is trying to grow the stuff that's horticulturally really pushing our luck you know that's the bit that adds the excitement to my job you know trying to grow things like chickpeas and soybeans and stuff that wants a real nice long hot summer that goes on and on and on real horticultural challenge so doing lots of different things it's an area where the broad beans have finished and come out and we don't want a bare patch for the rest of the summer um, so we've sown a green manure of buckwheat and it's one we're growing elsewhere in the Asian section because you can grow it to eat, like eat the seed um, but here we're using it as a green manure so we fill this patch in for a couple of weeks as it starts to flower, we chop it down and dig it in basically as, uh, to improve soil fertility. Because of the tough conditions, growing conditions here it's quite an exposed site have quite a short growing season, Um, so we start later and have to finish earlier than places that are really protected and sheltered, so it means I don't really have time to get another decent crop of something in here, so a green manure just helps pad out the back end of summer, so yeah, if, if you're growing on the allotment, say if your first early potatoes are finishing and you don't know what to put there, you know, put some green manure down um, there's loads of different ones you can use um, but I use buckwheat a lot here or phacelia I use a lot in the summer as well but any of the clovers used um, grazing rye as well effectively here um, so these beans growing up these frames this is a yard-long bean um, Got a really complicated botanical name so I'm not going to try and uh, pronounce it but it's basically in the Vigna genus from Asia they're like a very very long climbing french bean so if they reach their potential you could end up with a bean that's about a meter long hence the name yard long bean um, but i do like it nice and hot this is one that's really experimental and pushing it for us a little bit so we'll see so another real tough one real experimental one for us these are chickpeas or sysa aratinum this is one that's been A little bit hit and miss for us, we've uh, we've had quite wet weather through the summer and I don't think they've liked sitting wet at the roots. we have had a bit of root rot, lost the the odd plant and then we've had others that have been really good and have flowered uh, and produced the, the seed pod and we have actually successfully grown chickpeas in Essex. And then we've got a couple of other ones that people have heard of but definitely never seen growing before. So we've got soybeans. Um, I've hooked out, found a variety called Pripyat um, that's supposed to do slightly better in a European climate and it's done quite well for us. I mean, it has flowered and there are bean pods forming on it so we'll see how we get on with that. And then we've got mung beans and adzuki beans as well here we i do a bit of everything we grow both white and red onions i grow smaller pickling onions as well lots of spring onions lots of shallots anything you grow yourself has got better taste personally Um, even with the simple things like onions and potatoes and and stuff everything tastes better to me one of the plants that for me sort of sums up the whole sort of global growth uh, garden sort of project is the ochre the oxalis tuberosis it's unusual but one that people could possibly try growing at home with some results. Still needs a little bit of sort of breeding work done to it to potentially make it a real staple crop in our veg gardens. Where they come from in South America, they sort of rival the potato in terms of importance as a staple crop the point of us being here is we are display an educational garden so we want i want visitors to come down and and, and walk into the garden and go wow and walk away and feel inspired to have a go grow your own yourselves uh, even if it's on a very basic beginner level but even for sort of more more advanced gardeners and more experienced gardeners they can come in here and see stuff they've never seen before i think i could give that a go you know, live locally i'm in essex they grow it here what well, can't i grow at home that, that's that's what we're about really
1: matthew oliver at the global Grove garden at hyde hall in essex you can find out more information at rhs.org.uk forward slash i'm guy barter and you're listening to the rhs gardening podcast This September there are lots of events and activities taking place at Hyde Hall and at our other gardens and partner gardens across the UK. Conservation charity Plant Heritage will hold seasonal plant fairs at both Hyde Hall and Rosemore during the weekend of the 23rd and 24th of September. There will be a wide range of rare and unusual trees, shrubs and perennials from local nurseries for sale, a must for all keen gardeners and plant collectors. If you've ever wondered what kind of apple tree you have, join us at the National Food Growers Fruit Show at Harlow Carr on the 9th of September and get advice on fruit growing and identification. There's still time to visit the wonderful Wisley Flower Show which runs until the 10th of September, featuring spectacular displays, outstanding shopping from quality nurseries and trade stands, the National Dahlia Society Show, expert advice and much more. Don't forget, these garden shows are free for RHS members and a guest. Plus, there are several exciting shows coming up at the RHS headquarters in Vincent Square in London. Full details of all events and many more are on our website. Go to RHS.org.uk forward slash eventsearch. And finally, as promised, the latest results from a major RHS research project looking at plants for bugs. The RHS science team recently released the second paper reporting on the findings of a four-year study into the types of plants which are most attractive to insects. The study focused on native versus non-native plant species and insect populations were recorded over a four-year period. Insects, and particularly pollinating insects, are vital for garden health and food production. But with the loss of increasing amounts of green spaces in Britain, they're increasingly under threat so this study is vital in analysing what gardeners can do to protect and encourage those insects that remain. RHS advisor Jenny Bowden met up with experts from the Plants for Bugs project to hear more about the research findings.
4: We all love to have wildlife in our gardens and our latest findings from our Plants for Bugs research gives us some pointers into how we can encourage not just the pollinating insects but a whole range of invertebrates uh, I have Dr Andrew Salisbury and Helen Bostock with me to tell us more about this work. Andy, what have we been setting out to discover with our research?
2: The research ba- is basically looking at what is it best to plant for wildlife. So you you read books and things will say, oh, plant native plants, but we all know that our gardens are full of wildlife no matter what we plant. So we set up an experiment to test whether uh, native what we call near native plants and northern hemisphere garden plants, uh, or exotic uh, southern hemisphere garden plants were best for garden wildlife.
4: And in this particular piece of research, you've been looking more at the invertebrates. What, what's an
2: invertebrate? Well, uh, well yes, the uh, invertebrates is, is basically uh, sort of those spineless organisms, okay. <laughs> to, to put it simply. Um, they're, they're, they're organisms without an internal skeleton. So this includes your millipedes, your centipedes, your spiders, as well, of course, your insects, which we're all familiar with, the butterflies, the moths, the caterpillars, uh, the beetles, and that sort of thing.
4: So are we, we're looking at where... Uh, perhaps not so much the pollinating creatures are living, but the 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 sort of the lower level. So they're using the plants as hiding places, is that right?
2: The part of the work that we have just published is looking at those insects and other invertebrates which are on the plants, and using the plants in some way. Be that actually eating the plants, the, the herbivores, or feeding on the insects eating the plants. So the predators, the parasitic wasps, uh, the spiders, that sort of thing. And of course there's that important group that we all need, those Uh, invertebrates that help break down dead and decomposing organic matter, the uh, detritivores as they're known.
4: So Helen that includes a huge range of creatures and quite a few of those we may not want in our gardens at all. Things like slugs, snails and aphids probably top the list there. Um, What what are their um, reasons for being there and is there any way that we can have a, a balance? any gardener listening to this will be going hang on a
5: minute we mentioned herbivores things that munch and chew and suck on our lovely plant leaves so I think you're right to to question that um, the, the, the slugs and snails actually we haven't yet looked at the data for those but certainly those things that gardeners might just be a little bit more cautious about necessarily wanting to invite into their gardens but I think we need to take a, a sort of slightly um, further back step on, on this and actually say, well, what, what's the bigger picture? And I've got two words for that food and chain the food chain and and that's really at the heart of a garden ecology and if we don't have a really healthy number of different invertebrate groups so all these what we call the the primary functional groups within the garden the the herbivores then the predators and the detritivores that Andy's talked about if we are missing a link from that we as gardeners won't get to enjoy our birds being able to pick off caterpillars to feed their fledglings. We won't see things that rely on all these different invertebrates like um, mammals. So, you know, our hedgehogs and all the well loved things. So I think we've got to almost be adults about it and actually say, yeah we need to embrace a little bit more now that doesn't mean to say that we have to just sit, do we have, to, what, do we have do, to sit there and watch our plants be decimated really that that's the key I, to it. I think we need to get the balance right, so it might just be something little like saying, right, maybe don't reach for the spray at the very first sign of a nibbled leaf, maybe just you know wait and see if nature starts to kick in and, and you know, send the predators. Um, and again, perhaps our expectations, maybe don't get too worried and lose a lot of sleep if if there's the odd little hole here and there. Um, certainly there are cases where we might want to protect valuable crops, so for example in the veg garden or the fruit garden, we might want to use insect-proof netting and so on. But I think we, um, certainly the, this research, um, it, it does get over to gardeners, that maybe just a little more relaxed attitude, and that should be music to many gardeners' ears, um, is not a bad thing.
4: Okay, lovely. Andy, so what have we found out?
2: Basically we found out two things. Uh, We did find that more invertebrates of all distant groups, the herbivores, the predators and the detritivores, were found on the native plots compared to the others. difference was fairly marginal, about 10 or 20% compared to the other groups. Uh, But what we also found was the more plants you have, the more densely they're planted, the more foliage you have, the more invertebrates you get.
4: Good and bad included. Good good in a gardener's sense, and bad in a gardener's sense, the ones that are going to eat your plants as well. But that's really all to do with the balance, isn't it? So in terms of natives that we might find um, to to plant in our gardens that are going to be nice for us to look at, as well as being good for the wildlife, what can you suggest, Helen? A lot of us might actually have some garden favourites that are
5: natives and maybe not realise it. So if you've got some lovely foxgloves in your garden or some primroses, you know, in a shady spot or maybe a, um, a common honeysuckle, those are all what we would call UK native plants. So just a little tweak. Um, if you think you're, you're lacking maybe this group, Um, there's lots of information on the RHS website under Plants for Bugs um, uh, and the first results um, because we've got on there some links to um, lists of uh, UK native plants Um, there's many wildflowers I think you 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 just have to look at you know the sort of palette of um, our countryside to discover that the sort of field scabious late flowering things like common ivy um, are actually very good so You don't necessarily have to go into your garden as a result of this research and rip out what you've got there. But just have a little think, if you are a bit low on the amount of natives that you've got in in your garden, maybe next time you're at the garden centre, just perhaps download one of our lists, have a little look, see if you can just enhance some of those. The other thing just that's worth picking up on Andy's point, um, regardless of the geographical origin of the plants in the uh, experiment that we ran here, what we did find was a really positive relationship between the number of these uh, invertebrates and the density of planting within your garden. So that's again another good message for gardeners. Maybe just put those secateurs away. Don't, you know, if, if you've got a husband who's a bit snap-happy with the with the old trimmers, you know, maybe just tell him to, you know, sit back a little bit and allow your plants to fill out in
4: the border. And not having gaps between plants will help keep uh, more unwanted weeds down. Perhaps the more pernicious weeds, perhaps that'll help as well. What I'm interested in knowing, Andy, is how some of these creatures can identify plants. Obviously, there's the obvious ones like food fodder plants. Mm. Uh, so um, yeah, certain creatures need certain plants to eat and they won't exist if if those plants aren't there. But how do they identify the plants?
2: All insects have lots of, uh, insects and other invertebrates have um, sensory organs on their heads, uh, antennae, mouth parts, and basically it's what's known as chemoreception. They pick up molecules in the air with the antennae, they pick up molecules on the plant surface with their uh, their labial palps, their feelers next to their mouth, and they use taste as well. So they can basically smell the plants and taste the plants that, so that are suited would, that to them. So that would
4: figure for a lily, going for a lily beetle, yes. but what about um, something that's just using you know, spiders and the, the sort of other, other orders of creatures uh, do they really, they don't care, they're, they're not really making a choice so at you, all between you, native and non-native. You're taking, well
2: uh, we did or find are that there were more there, whether that is because they were more herbivores, more plant, uh, insects feeding on the plants there, but also these creatures will too use the smell of plants to uh, find uh, their host so a predatory parasitic wasp will use the smell of a plant damaged by a caterpillar to find the caterpillar there's these complex chemical interactions and chemical warfare going on in in your garden that you may not notice
4: so that really just goes to emphasize the fact that we need to have all of it there to balance the garden out so get planting
1: you can read more information about the plants for bugs project on our website there you can also find details of easy steps you can take in your garden to support beneficial insects go to rhs.org.uk forward slash plants for bugs i'm afraid that's all we have time for in this podcast we'll be back in a fortnight until then remember you can follow us on twitter or instagram or like us on facebook For now, from me, Guy Barter, and all the podcast team, thank you for listening and goodbye.